Fred Glass was the athletic director at Indiana University for over 12 years and was a transformational leader in Bloomington where he rebuilt so much of the athletics enterprise at IU. Fred joined us on Sport and the Growing Good to talk about leadership and to talk about his journey. Particularly, we spoke about the influence of the Jesuits on Fred's journey. And part of the reason why we focused on this was that our own learning about the great coach Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers. Recently, we read David Marinus's book, When Pride Still Mattered, and we had the chance to visit with David about his book. And he told us about the formative influence of the Jesuits on Lombardi in so many ways from his days at Fordham on through leading the Packers. And the deeper issue that we drew from that was less about the Jesuits specifically than about the importance as leaders to have clear principles identified and articulated that that ground us and that lead us in our work. That no matter what our specific positions that we hold or the specific work that we're doing or where we find ourselves doing it, that we are anchored in deeper values and beliefs. And so for Fred, like Coach Lombardi, much of his formative influence as a person, as a leader, came from this Jesuit education that he received. And he talks about in our discussion how even though maybe when he was a young person, he didn't realize some of those things had affected him so deeply that when he became the athletic director at Indiana, they did come to bear and that they did guide a lot of his thoughts and the work he did. Fred is a humble leader. I've had the chance to be in the room with him many times in various leadership situations and a lot of very difficult conversations um, across the Big Ten and NCAA athletics context. And I always was impressed with Fred's humility and his wisdom and that as many other people were very vocal and very adamant about filling up the room with their own voices, Fred was a leader who would often sit back and listen. And when he did speak up, it was almost always something very poignant and thoughtful and well-conceived. So I asked Fred about that in our conversation about how he came to have that perspective and, and some of the specific strategies that he uh, uses to guide him as a leader. Uh, he said a lot of things that really interested me. I'll just identify one here that actually stood out and it relates to humility. It relates to listening. One of the kind of little phrases that he threw in kind of quickly, he said, interested is interesting. Interested is interesting. Meaning, as he explains, when we are interested in others, when we ask them questions about themselves, when we solicit their opinions, we are ourselves interesting as people and as leaders. And it's not rocket science, as Fred suggested, but that understanding human nature as a leader is really a critical thing. And so as a an athletic director or as a head coach or as some other kind of leader in the field of sports, if we are interested in those around us, we ourselves become interesting and more compelling as leaders. So Fred is absolutely a compelling leader and he's a highly, highly effective leader, even though you won't hear it out of his mouth because he, like I said, he is humble. But if we read his biography and his upcoming book that will be published in November, 
we will see that he has indeed accomplished great things and that he's a, a wonderful model uh, for us all to learn from. So thank you, Fred Glass, a great leader for joining us on Sport and the Growing Good. My, my dad uh, went to Marquette University on the GI Bill. Of course, that's a Jesuit institution. And that uh, had a really big impact on him. And so growing up, he was always talking about the Jesuits and his experience with the Jesuits. Uh, in fact, he sent me to the new Jesuit school in Indianapolis for Buff Jesuit, um, even though he had gone to uh, another Catholic school, uh, Cathedral. And I will be honest that when I went to Burbuff, I didn't really feel it. You know, I, I wasn't aware of the impact of, of the Jesuit uh, teachings, although it was all around me. And I, I think it was kind of like uh, the tiny time pills that, 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 that were put in me that blossomed later in my life when I could see the application of it, you know? And so I always stayed connected with Burbuff, I was the first alumnus to chair the board of trustees of Burbuff. All four of my kids um, went to Burbuff. But in a lot of ways, um, the, uh, the express application of Jesuit teachings came to the fore when I, when I became the athletic director at IU. Maybe a little bit, uh, I, I, I hesitate to com uh, compare myself to Vince Lombardi, but you know the Packers were a hot mess when, when um, when Lombardi got there, and I think he relied on his background at Fordham and to uh, to work with that. And, and when I got to IU, it was a hot mess, and I was trying to figure out how do we rebuild this organization. And I just borrowed very heavily from the Jesuits in trying to do that. Were there certain specific aspects, Fred, that really spoke to you as you're looking to build as a leader? Yeah, Pete. So, so uh, just a little context. Um, when I got to IU in 2009, and most of your students were, you know, babies then, so, and, and, you know, it's IU, so they probably wouldn't pay that much attention to it anyway. But I got there because there had been a major infractions case. Kelvin Sampson, our uh, power basketball coach, our premier sport had been cheating um, and had not paid sufficient attention to academics, I think it's fair to say. Um, my predecessor basically got fired over that. I was hired uh, as a result of that. Didn't come out of intercollegiate athletics. I was practicing law, minding my own business in Indianapolis. So I was sort of landing from Mars. And I uh, I talked to several coaches as part of trying to learn what was going on. And multiple coaches said to me, why, why would someone who looks like they could be doing something else want to come here to do this? Which really, you know, it didn't scare me, but it bummed me out. Because for me, it's sports, college, Bloomington, you know, What's, what's not the like? But then I, I, I think maybe in an Ignatian tradition, I, I tried to reflect on what their reality was. And their reality was I was the fifth athletic director in eight years. So imagine that. Um, we had just had this awful major infractions case that cut to the heart of everything IU people like to believe about themselves. That we, we may not win all the time, but we don't cheat. And we put a premium on academics. It had been less than 10 years since Bob Knight had been fired. Uh, that was a divisive matter inside and outside the athletic department. And then Terry Hepner was our football coach, died of that awful brain cancer, geoplastoma. We thought he was going to lead us to the promised land finally in football. So in 10 years, they had churned leadership. They had endured these, any one of which would have been a 
transformative, challenging issue, all that in this period of time. And so you were getting these people saying, why would you want to come here? And you were getting dysfunctional uh, activity that you might suspect in that. People didn't want to get noticed. They didn't want to color outside the lines. They didn't want to take chances. They didn't really want to buy in because they figured I was going to come and go very quickly like everybody else had come and gone in leadership. And so I realized that or, or believe that before I could really build the department, I had to heal it. And we had to create a spree de corps, a rallying cry. And that's when I first uh, uh, was inspired by or stole um, some Jesuit teachings. And um, the first one is really the grad at graduation. And some of your students may have been Jesuit educated. You may be aware of this. At every high, Jesuit high school in the country, they have the grad at grad. And those are the five characteristics that the uh, school wants to inculcate in their kids that they uh, possess when they when they leave. And for the and for the Jesuits, I, I'll see if I get this right. It's uh, being loving, religious, intellectually competent, open to growth, and committed to social justice. And it's everywhere. It's in the hallways. It's 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 in the graduation program. Every teacher has to say how they're going to drive these values into their kids, no matter what their class is, whether it's American history or, or, or organic chemistry, you know, and, and, and having gone to a Jesuit school and four kids have gone to Jesuit school, I tell you, they don't come out with all those attributes, you know, but it, but, but it's very mindfully laid out that, that maybe like me, they kick in later in life. Some people get some and not the others, but it's, it's very deliberate. So we established for what became five priorities that were essentially our grad at grad, that we were gonna play by the rules, that we were gonna be well in mind, body, and spirit, that we were gonna achieve academically, excel athletically, uh, and be part of something bigger than ourselves that is more integrated with the university. And everything we did was around those, you know, budget setting, scheduling, hiring, firing, retention. Um, and we talked about it till you know, everybody was, uh, kind of sick of it, but um, it's been kind of a long diatribe, so I'll take a breath here. But 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 that was the first part of it because I believe that, especially in this ever-changing world, if you are not a value-based organization, if you don't have a very expressed, written-down sense of who you are and what you're about, then you then you don't have much of a chance to succeed as the winds of change, all the unexpected stuff comes down the pike. There's this interesting term that I've read about recently um, with the Jesuits called living rules. And, and what I gather from that, Fred, is that um, an organization can define its kind of principles, like kind of like you just said, kind of lay out what you're all about and your values and your principles and define it over and over. But the idea of a living rule is like, if those things were gone, if you lost them, if, if you didn't see them, you could look at certain people and you could just watch them and, and they, they live it out. They live the rules in, in very tangible ways. Um, and that they're, they model those things. Have you had people like that in your own life, whether as a young kid or moving through who were kind of your living rules, people that you just look to as someone that you kind of wanted to model after? Absolutely. And, and I, I think the premise of your question is exactly right. 
to put a, to put a bit of a point on it, um, you know, and you, you may have heard this metaphor before, but but when you know exactly where you're going, you know, when when there's not a lot of uh, distraction or 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 you know, uh, scandals of the day or 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 change, you know, then that, that's pretty easy. You you use a GPS, you plug in, you know build out the deck at the football stadium or whatever it is. And, and you can get there when all hell's breaking loose, like in a pandemic or an area of an era of social unrest or a change of athletic director or a change of president, you don't, you don't have the address and that's when you need a compass. And, and I suggest that that, 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 that your value system is your compass. If you don't have the value system, and, 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 and things are changing where you need a, a, a compass, if you will, as opposed to a GPS, you're really in a bad, bad place um, if you don't have an express value system in place. But to your point, um, you know, you can write down anything you want, but it all comes down to people, no matter, no matter what kind of business you're in. And, I, and I'd say there are some people like that. My father is one. My father was a very flawed person. He was a severe alcoholic. Um, um, I think self-medicating through his own uh, demons. Um, yet he was also a great man who, in my view, um, lived the gospel. You know, he, he ran a Skid Row bar. He literally fed the hungry, welcomed the stranger. Um, and it took me a, a while to learn to, to appreciate that about him. But but I I have a great appreciation for that. And think about my dad. Um, um, I had a priest at Burbuff Jesuit in high school, Father Paul O'Brien, and, and he really personified all the things that you think about positively about Jesuits. One of my favorite things that he said was he felt like it was his job to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And I, I just always sort of latched onto that and, and felt like as a leader, that was a responsibility uh, uh, for me. And so I think about Father O'Brien uh, quite a bit. I think about Herman Wells. Um, uh, Herman Wells was the transformational president at IU that really took it from kind of a backwater regional kind of college in the 30s to by the time he left in the 70s, it was truly a national and international leader. And the values he personified, I think, were very nation. Um, he was an agent of change, but he didn't change by taking things head on. He, he, which in a, in a conservative state like Indiana was, was wise, but he accomplished it by kind of going around and accomplishing the change before everyone knew he was even doing the change, you know? So, so I've been fortunate to have a lot of mentors and models, but I guess those are, those are three that I'd mentioned to you. Fred, building off that phrase you just said about comfort, the, what comfort, can you say it again? Comfort the dis, disturbed. Comfort the disturbed and disturbed the comfortable. Disturbed the comfortable, which, relates a little bit to my next question, which was another Ignatian phrase that from, from Ignatius Loyola is speak little, listen much. And in, in my time that I've been able to work around you, um, like in conference settings, I've appreciated this about you, that there are some people who like to fill up the room with <laughs> their voices, uh, just for no apparent sake, other than to fill it up. You, I never, took you to, I actually took you to be the other way that you didn't say a whole lot, but when you did, it was very meaningful and thoughtful. And 
I wonder if that's purposeful, first of all, this idea of foregrounding listening. And then I wonder if you have certain strategies that you found to be particularly effective as listening strategies, especially for those who are not traditionally heard. Yeah, well, first of all, I appreciate uh, the comments and I, um, again, agree with the premise. I, I also am a big fan of St. Francis and he feels like he should have been a Jesuit maybe, but, you know, he did his own thing. The Franciscans are maybe kissing cousins to the Jesuits, but, you know, he famously said, preach the gospel, use words if you have to. And, and I think that modeling, that concept of modeling is really important. I also really like the prayer of St. Francis where he says, uh, seek, seek not so much to be understood, but to understand. And that's really powerful, you know, because most people, a lot of people, they're not listening so much as they're waiting to speak. Um, and, they're, and they're not really prepared to, to be convinced of something other than their current view. And look, I don't want to get too high on my soapbox because I'm flawed on all these things. And, and I should mention at the top that I, you know, these are aspirational to a great extent. But it's helpful for me to be, to be mindful of that. And I, I think, I think the biggest, you know, ironically, maybe the biggest thing to listening is listening. I, I make it a point never to interrupt anybody. Frankly, even when they're prattling on about something that I'd, I'd like to stick a rusty ice pick in my, in my <laughs> more than listen to them anymore. I just, I just don't, I, I let them go until they're sort of done. And, and that can be hard sometimes but if but if you get into that mode i've been told i'm a good listener um i, I also have been told i'm a brilliant conversationalist when all i do is ask the other person about themselves um and so those are two things i try to do i try never to interrupt and listen all the way through and i really try to try to ask questions about the other other person um what do they say interested is interesting um, and then that's the way, you know, you learn things or you surface object, even if it's somebody you don't agree with, you surface objections, you know, that you can then, then deal with. So uh, it, it, I'm sort of the master of the obvious, but I think the key to listening is don't talk. You just said interested is interesting. Can you play that out a little more? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, sometimes when you're, um, you know, making friends or trying to make an impression or having a business lunch or talking to a professor or talking to uh, the new girl in the dorm or, or whatever. Sometimes people think, well, I, this is my chance to, to, to put myself on display and talk about all the things I do and who I am and all that. But, but human nature is people like to talk about themselves and share with who they are. So, so if you want to be perceived as an interesting person, then you need to be interested and demonstrate interest in other people. And I, I tell my wife, I laugh so hard. It's like people, people will say, man, that guy is so interesting. And I'm like, all I did was ask him four questions. I never said, I never said a word, you know, but, but that's, I think that's a useful and, you know, it has benefits beyond being perceived as an interesting person. You, you learn about, you know, other people. Jumping from uh, Ignatius to 
Dostoevsky. We're, we're going to deep stuff here, Fred. There's there's Dostoevsky had this, the famous Russian novelist had this phrase. He said, he said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing in comparison with love in dreams. And I wonder if there, if you see comparisons here to leadership in, in that, especially in this kind of glitzy world of sports uh, uh, you, you even said you know I wanted to go what, what what's there not to like about being at college being involved with sports and I think a lot of of younger people especially when they're interested in coaching or that they think of the the shiny times and you know the the cool things that go along with it but there's also some really difficult things associated with it some you know to, to use that language love and action is harsh well you could say leadership and action can be a harsh thing. Um, what have you found to be the kind of most difficult aspects of leadership and, and how do you make your way through those things? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, question. This is fun too, by the way, Pete. I mean, I don't really talk a lot about, you know, these great authors and, and uh, theologians. And I should say that while I, I'm an, you know, an active practicing Catholic and all that, I'm not a, I'm not a person generally wears religion on the sleeve and, 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 and a lot of these Ignatian things and Franciscan things, I view more through the prism of leadership, you know, than, than, than theology for what's that for what that's worth uh, in terms of being an athletic director. For me, clearly the hardest thing is, is firing coaches. It's a necessary part of the job. Um, and, and it's an important part of the job. I think um, people do a disservice to their departments, and their universities, if they wait too long, um, on the other hand, I'd rather be criticized for waiting a little too long than being a little too quick. And so there's as much art as science in, in doing that, but you've got to be prepared. Your students need to understand they've got to be prepared to that. It all starts out roses and lollipops. And, and you know, more times than not, I would say it ends up having to make a change for one reason or another. And that's really, really hard. And um, especially with power coaches that are high profile, my wife used to tease me that I would lose, you know, 10, 15 pounds going through, you know, the process of, of making a change with a coach. So that's, that's hard. I, I think part of the um, help with that is, is an Ignatian uh, concept of detachment and discernment, um, taking the emotion out of those decisions um, in, in, in terms of detachment. Um, our jobs are what we do. They're not who we are. Um, you've got to be careful not to get too wound up and, and connected. I think with the coaches, I've, I've heard of uh, coaches and athletic directors that own cabins together and vacation together and do stuff together. And, and I just, I think, I, I think that's, I don't think it's a good idea. You know, I think you, you support them and all that, but you've got to maintain a little detachment and then discernment, you know, be prepared to, um, you know, analyze and try on for size keeping them, not keeping them, extending them, not extending them. I think those can help in that super challenging time, which I think is the hardest part of being an AD. Another hard part, I think, of being an athletic director, and really for all of us, is, is, is just, just the high-profile public nature and, and being subject to a lot of criticism, especially in this era of social media, message boards, you know, you name it, you know, as an athletic director, you can get ripped, you know, you know, drive time radio. Everybody's trying to say the most outrageous thing to drive clicks and eyeballs and all that. And it's tough. And, 
I think people can think that, you know, athletes and coaches and administrators are, are sort of these uh, uh, robots or something, but they're, but they're people. And especially kids, I mean, they, they, they switch on their social media. So they track everything people are saying about them. And it's, it's pretty, pretty awful, especially for kids. Cause you know, they're not, uh, they're, they're not, they're, they're, it's not their livelihood, at least more or less. It's not their livelihood. So one of my big things is to take criticism seriously, not personally. I, I think I'm actually pretty good at that. Again, it falls into our jobs or what we do. They're not who we are. And criticism is one of two things, right? It's either accurate. If you reflect on it and it's accurate, then it's a great opportunity to fix it. If you reflect on it and it's not accurate, then who cares? Um, and so I think that sort of defangs criticism in a way. And I, I'd encourage our people to think about it that way. And then I'll give you, I'll give you a quick um, um, uh, seemingly religious um, anecdote. So my son, one of my, I have four kids, one of my sons, our, our wives were gone. He said, Hey, let's go to mass. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll bring, I'll bring the grandkids and we'll, we'll go to church. Great. And I, I, I frankly, I had, wasn't going to church that much. Um, so I said, okay, that'll be great. So I go, of course, he doesn't show up. That's fine. So I'm uh, sitting there and, um, and, 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 and the gospel um, is about um, loving your enemies, you know, turning the other cheek. And I was in the middle of this thing where I was getting relentlessly ripped by this local uh, pundit. And, and it was very personal and it was very relentless and he has a big following. People were always asking me about it and it was really pissing me off. And to the point where I was like, you know, plotting revenge, what I was going to say to this guy and how I was just going to you know, undercut his criticisms. And I was really getting wound up in that. And then, and then, and then this, this gospel that I've heard 5,000 times talking about loving your enemies and that it's, 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 it's no big deal to love your friends and your family. I mean, gangsters love their friends and family. The, the, the difference is, is loving your enemies, which I always thought was like kind of a crazy challenge. And then that day, man, that was, it was like the first time I'd heard that. Okay. And a, and a big thing with the Jesuits is to see God in all things. And usually it's a very non-God thing. See it in, you know, the kindness of a spouse or the curiosity of a child or, you know, I, 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 you know, pay attention because God's talking to you. Well, the gospel is a pretty traditional way for God talking to you. But instead of like, you know, looking at my fingernails or something, I was listening and, and, and it was really speaking to me. You know, love your enemies. And, and at that moment, I'm like, if I love this guy who's ripping me, I completely take his power away because I don't I don't care anymore. And and that was like a, an epiphany, man. So so so, you know, paying attention, listening. I got guidance and it, and it, and it really changed everything for me, because what, what do they say about poison? What do they say about um Revenge, re revenge is 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 killing somebody else by you drinking poison, right? 
So, so by, by getting all wrapped up in this and plotting my revenge and ah, so mad, now I just laugh at him, you know, and it was very emancipating for me. So anyway, that's a long way of saying for the, for the public criticism component of it, I just encourage people to treat criticism, you know, seriously, not personally, and, and, and just love the people that, that attack you because it's, it's a devastating counterpunch. In that example, Fred, how would you show love to someone like that? So we're not talking about someone who you're working with every day, but someone, this strikes me as a common thing, someone who's kind of on the periphery of what we do, but they're a big thorn in our side, you know, a media pundit or someone like that. You you said you just laugh at it, but did it actually play out in an interaction of some kind? Yeah, mostly it was like internal, right? I just, I just quit thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I, I quit really caring about it. I, I uh, quit deciding how fun it was going to be to give him his comeuppance. I mean, I just didn't really care yeah. about that. Yeah. But then it would also actually, because, you know, it, it would play itself out in um, interactions. Like he would text me. I remember which I, it was like late in the year and he texted me and just ripped me about all this stuff and used all this abusive, you know, language and demeaning stuff. And I just said, Hey man, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and, and that a, it was just like deflected all this venom that had come my way. And B I think it really pissed him off, which I must say, I sort of enjoyed that. <laughs> so, so it's just, don't take the bait, you know, don't, yeah. don't. And when, and when you're like, this guy, this guy can't do anything to me because I'm, I don't care, man, that's really powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Okay, at the risk of uh, beating too many uh, Jesuit things into the ground, I have two more, then we'll be done. Two more things to ask you about. Um, One, um, another Ignatian thing I've read a lot relates, it's, he says, first riches, then honors, then pride. And, And talking about how, you know, kind of pride, not, not pride, like we're proud to be IU, but, you know, self pride that it can be the, the foundation of a lot of things going wrong. And, and you can see how without a whole lot of strain to see how that might be very much a threat in the world of athletics where riches, honors, pride can bring people down. Have you been purposeful about seeking humility in your life or how have you gone about that? Yeah. Um, there's something inherently uh, unhumble about claiming to be humble, you know? So it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Tricky, yeah. <laughs> I'm the most humble guy there is. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I do believe that um, I've been pretty good at understanding that um, I've, 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 I've gotten the respect or, or, or whatever from the positions I hold, not who I am. Okay. So we talked a little bit before about, um, you know, these jobs are what we do. They're not who we are. And you think about that a lot when bad stuff's happen. Well, these guys are ripping me, but you know, it's not really my fault because it's my job. It's not who I am. But, but that also applies when they're saying really good stuff about you. Okay. Hmm. Um, um, and when you're getting accolades and when you're getting your phone calls returned and when you're getting, you know, special treatment, you got to remember that's not because I'm Fred Glass. That's because I'm the IUAD. And I, and I think people get in trouble when they conflate that 
and 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 get their personal identity too wrapped up in what they do. And and so, you know, there's people that after they leave being chief of staff to the governor, they're sort of fine and they're glad they're not getting phone calls. And they're glad people aren't inviting them to this and that. And that was like me. But I had colleagues who quit being the governor's chief of staff, and it made them crazy that people quit returning their phone calls, quit inviting them to things. And it's as simple as, I think, remembering it's about the positions we hold. It's not who we are for good or for, for bad. Because, Pete, you've been close to it, man. Few asses get kissed as much as an athletic director. That's why everybody wants to be one, you know? You, you stay in suites, you travel on private jets, everybody tells you what a great job you're doing, you know, to your face. Um, you know, it's it, it, it can be very seductive. You know, if you, you know, lawyers say, be careful to believe your own briefs, you know. You got to be careful not to believe all that bullshit when people are, 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 are saying that to you. And I think that I think that keeps you grounded. This isn't about me. It's about the job I have. And people say stuff because they, not all of them, but they want something or they're doing this or they're doing that. And so, you know, surround yourself with people tell you the truth. You know, there's a saying in politics, if you're not a very smart office holder, surround yourself with smart people. And if you are a smart office holder, surround yourself with people that disagree with you all the time. And that is important. A, you gotta hire them and B, you can't shoot messengers you've got to demonstrate that you're willing to be told the truth. And so I think, I think between uh, understanding that these jobs, that we get our power from the jobs we have, not who we are, getting people around you to, to ground you by telling you the truth. Um, then I think you can, I think you can avoid, you know, the, the, uh, the sin really of, of pride, which, which leads to the fall. It, it really does. My last question, Fred, um, what, one of the things among many that I see is so interesting about you, your journey is that you've done so many dip, really different things and in all different kind of walks of life. And when, when I speak with a lot of our young and aspiring leaders, a lot of them, when they talk about their future, they have they aspire toward positions kind of much related to what you just said, like they aspire to be an AD or they aspire to be a head coach. Um, as opposed to articulating what they want in kind of a deeper meaning that they're aspiring toward. And one, one term you might think of as vocation, meaning like a calling, like what am I called to do? What am I more deeply aspiring toward? As you reflect upon your own journey through so many positions, have you been aware of a certain vocation throughout that? Um, over time, I have. And when I was a young person, I thought my vocation was public service. I always loved government politics. My, uh, my father said I was a prenatal Democrat. I walked the precinct with my, with my mother when she ran for precinct committee woman when I was five. Always worked on campaigns. Um, and, and, I, and I love public, public service, government politics, and was involved in, in public service um, you know, in a pretty significant way. And I thought, I thought, I thought that was my vocation. But, but one day my wife said to me, it's, that's not your vocation. Your vocation is leadership. And I hadn't really thought about that exactly that way, but, but I think she was right. 
You know, one of the things I really enjoyed about public service was the opportunity to lead. And then when I left the governor's office, I worked for a law firm and shortly thereafter became the chairman of their management committee and, and really enjoyed the leading there more than practicing law. Um, and then I had another round of, of public service with, um, with the mayor, but a lot of that was leadership about pursuing a new stadium and pursuing a Super Bowl. And, 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 uh, um, and, then, and then IU was really an exercise in leadership. So the, the red thread through all of this is leadership. And, 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 and that's been a good recognition for me because in some ways it, it doesn't matter a lot about what the thing is. It's about the opportunity to lead. And, and to your students uh, that, 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 that talk about what's at the end, I would just encourage them to ask more what's next. You know, if, if, if you're good at deciding what's next, the end tends to take care of itself. And I would say to them, always pick the option creates more options downstream, you know, and be open to them in, in a great Ignatian tradition, you know, be open to growth because I've done a lot of different things, including a lot of things that I didn't think I was qualified to do. But the issue isn't whether you think you're qualified. The issue is whether the person offering the opportunity thinks you're qualified. So when Evan Bai thought I was qualified to be on a senior staff at 29, I did it even though I didn't think I was, you know, when Bart Peterson asked me to leave the Super Bowl, uh, piece, uh, even though I didn't think I was prepared, I did. And it was awesome. When IU offered me the job of the AD, even though I didn't know anything about being an AD, you know, I did it. So, you know, just recognizing and seizing those opportunities, even if they seem a little left field, for me, has made all the difference.